Good morning, everyone. Well, you all didn't get the King James version of that <laughs> scripture, not the KJV, but you got the JKV. It's kind of close. Sorry about that. We'll see if I can fill in some of the gaps there for you, all right? Um, every Sunday morning when we gather here for worship, we all kind of turn this direction, right? And there's several things before us on this wall. You know, over here we have the cross, which always reminds us of the one who it is that unites us, who has brought us together. We have our big screen here um, so that we can unite together with one heart and one voice in worship. And then on this side, we have this beautiful mosaic. And uh, it's nice, right? But if you're looking, you might be like, why in the world is this here, right? And unless you were here nine years ago, you, you wouldn't know. But on September 17th, 2013, we started a sermon series here at, at Broadway. It was called uh, When Broken Becomes Beautiful. And on that day, we gave every person who was here a broken piece of pottery, and we asked them to write on their piece of pottery some broken place in their lives. Um, if you come and you get really close, you can actually still see the pencil markings that are here. You can read some of the things that we said on that day. And at the end of the service, we brought forward those pieces of pottery. We brought them to the altar, and we asked God to do what only he could do. We asked him to take those broken pieces and somehow, some way, restore and redeem them and make them into something beautiful. Some people, if you get up there and you start looking, you would see that um, they wrote about brokenness in relationships. They talked about conflict or cutoff, divorce or distance. Um, if you read some more, you would see that some people wrote about experiencing great loss and being in deep grief. If you read some more, you would see that people were walking through sickness. Um, you, if you read some more, you'd see that people wrote about dashed dreams and missed opportunities and regrets over things that had happened in their lives. Ironically, when I stood up here and was preaching that sermon that day, I was experiencing some brokenness in my own life. Um, I didn't fully know what was going on until the service was over. Um, but the reason why I can remember that date so clearly is because um, while I was preaching that day, my body was breaking. It was not working like it should. Um, my body was trying to bring into the world the baby I had only carried for three months after waiting 10 years um, to conceive a child. Um, my very impatient child named Lincoln, who's in the back of the room... <laughs> Still true to form, wanting to be where all the action is, he decided he was going to try to come and join us that day. And as I sat there in the ER, wondering what in the world was going to happen, and then went through surgery that night, I kind of had a gut check, you know, like, did I really believe what I had preached earlier that day? You know, it wasn't like I was blaming God for what was happening, but the questions were going through my mind, like, God, is it true? Can you really do it. If the worst happens, can you truly bring me back from this heartbreak? Can you really redeem and restore the very worst that this world throws at us? 
Throughout the rest of that series, uh, we explored together like all these different places in the scriptures where, where God comes along and he takes those pieces of our lives that he would never want for us, that he does not cause those broken places and somehow takes them and, and is able to create something beautiful. And that series culminated in all of our pieces of pottery being taken together by an artist and made into this beautiful mosaic that we see each and every week. Every time I look at this mosaic, it's a reminder to me that each of these pieces represents a situation, a situation that would have caused any reasonable person to question, to have some, some hard ponderings that they brought before God. That each little piece of those, this mosaic, it represents a moment in people's lives when it would have been easy for them to doubt a moment when they would have gone through a wide range of emotions and would have had their faith shaken like mine was that day on September 17, 2013, as I sat in that ER. Here at Broadway, it is our dream that each of us will be able to come into this place bringing those broken parts of our lives rather than having to hide them away. We want to be a place where we can be honest about who we are and where we are and where we can wrestle, wrestle through hard things together. We want this to be a place where you can ask tough questions and get curious, knowing that, that never for a moment um, are you alone and that you are loved as you walk through that. This is how our vision statement puts it. We dream of being a community of growth where hurts are healed. We talked about that last week, right? But also where faith is restored. And let me tell you why I think that this little piece of our vision statement is perhaps more important now than ever. Research tells us that today, 3,500 people will walk away from the church. Not just today, but every day. 3,500 people. That's like 1.2 million people a year. And that research is a little old and all indicators would tell us that if anything, that number has grown. That tells us that every day as we are moving through our lives, we are passing by people in our workplace, we're passing by people at the coffee shop, we're passing by people in our schools whose faith has been shaken by any number of situations and who are wondering, is it really possible? Can God restore my faith? Peter, Jesus' disciple, he seemed to have this same question in his life. Um, Jesus, the one that, that he considered his friend and his mentor, his rabbi, the one that he had boldly declared to be the Messiah, he had been crucified. And in the midst of that happening, Peter's faith was shaken to its core. You know, he had left everything to be a disciple. He had gone all in on Jesus for three years. All his hopes, all his dreams had been placed on the one that he thought had come to restore and redeem all of Israel. But now that same person had been rejected by his own people and killed like a common criminal. Sure, Jesus had risen from the dead, but, but things were not the same now. And on top of that, here is Peter who had denied Jesus three times within hours of him being put to death. It seemed like everything was broken and there, there was no way forward, that there was no way to put all the pieces back together again. Institutions had failed Peter. 
You know, the religious and the political powers that be, they'd actually come together and conspire to execute his Lord. How could he ever trust them again? His theology had broken down. In his mind, the Messiah was supposed to come and set things right. He was supposed to conquer and overcome everything and everyone and take his seat on the earthly throne to rule and reign, not die and be put in a grave and rise again and ascend into heaven. He, he didn't know how to make sense of it. But then personally, he was struggling as well. Jesus had given his life meaning and purpose. He thought he knew where his life was headed. He was right on track, but now he has gotten derailed. And he's wondering as he's down and defeated, what now? Where in the world is he supposed to go from here? And so what does he do? He walks away. It seems that Peter has, has kind of given up on the faith. He goes back to something that is comfortable. He goes back to something that is familiar. He goes back to something that is safe because, you know, a man's got to eat, right? <laughs> so he goes back to being a fisherman just like he was before Jesus called him to be a disciple. However, truth be told, fishing is not going all that well, okay? Um, in John 21 that we kind of heard about earlier, um, what we learn is that they've been out fishing all night, and guess what they have caught? Nothing. Nada. How many fishermen here would actually admit that, right? Yeah. So they're out there in the boat. You know that Peter and the disciples have to be discouraged, right? They, they, they've already been through so much. And this is just add, adding injury to in, insult to injury, you know, like, can nothing go right for them these days? But Early in the morning, they see a stranger standing on the seashore. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus, okay? <laughs> they just haven't figured it out yet. John says that Jesus appears to them. And that's actually a very important word. Because if you dig deeper into what that word appears means, what it really means is to reveal. And so in this moment, and what we're about to see play out, yes, there's this awesome miracle, but really what this story is about, when you get down to it, is about a revelation. It's about Jesus showing up. It is about Jesus coming along and, and beginning to restore their faith through, their faith through this face-to-face -face encounter, which evidently was what it was going to take to draw Peter and the disciples out of this dark place that they found themselves in. The stranger, a.k.a. Jesus, right? He calls out to the boat. What is the equivalent of today? Like, you know, are they biting today? He says, have you caught anything? And I can just imagine the disciples and Peter being a bit exasperated, like, come on, man. Don't just like rub our noses in this bad fortune. And so they yell back from the boat a one-word answer. No. <laughs> Hoping probably that the conversation would end there, right? Um, or at least that if the stranger yelled back at them, that they get a little bit of sympathy or an encouragement from him. But guess what they get instead? An armchair quarterback. Y'all know what those are, right? I bet some of you were one yesterday. How many of you watched the uh, Alabama-Tennessee game? Yeah, yeah. How many of you are watching saying, if the coach would just do this or the player would just do that? Dad, yeah, that's my dad in the back. Yes, dad, I know you would be. Um, yeah, 
that's an armchair quarterback, right? You're not actually in the game. You're not actually feeling the pressure of the moment. And yet, as this outsider looking in, you feel like you can just like call the shots from where you are, from your recliner, most likely, right? So that's what happens here. Um, They're out on the water. This person, not even in the boat, standing on the shore, yells out to them some instructions. He says to them, throw your net on the right side and you will find some there. And I'm sure, like in this moment, (laughs) the disciples um, are probably like rolling their eyes. Maybe they're shaking their heads. Maybe one of them mutters under their breath, like, who does this guy think that he is? But let's remember where they are in this moment. They are at rock bottom, right? They have no options. (laughs) Nothing is going well. And so they have nothing to lose. They're like, all right. We'll show him, and they throw the net out onto the right side. And when they begin to pull it in, it is so full that they can't even get it all into the boat. They have hit the jackpot. And John does not want us to miss this, okay? If you go back and you actually read the story through the Bible, what you'll see is like again and again, he gives us these clues, helping us not to miss what what. Uh, what's happening? How many fish? So like it says uh, another point, like the net was full. And then another point, it it goes on and it kind of gives us more description. It's like not only was it full, but it was full of large fish. And of course, when we read that and we think about any fisherman we know, we're kind of like, yeah, maybe it was large, maybe it wasn't. But because they don't want us to think that they're just making the story up about a bunch of fish, they actually counted them. There were 153 large fish to be exact. And it is as the disciples see these many fish that it clicks, that it becomes clear. This stranger is no stranger at all. This is Jesus. It was this miracle of abundance, a miracle of abundance like they had seen so many other times before. The very first miracle that they had watched Jesus perform was at a wedding in Cana. Y'all remember what happened there? They ran out of wine. It was not going to be a fun night. And so the, the host has, comes to Jesus, or actually his mom comes to him and is like, they're out of, they're out of wine. And so Jesus takes water. And he makes it into wine, and not just any wine, but like the best wine of the night. And then as they had followed Jesus throughout his lifetime, you know, they had been one day like standing before this great crowd of people. And Jesus, he had preached so long, which I promise not to do today, but um, he preached so long that the people were so hungry and they didn't know what to do. And so Jesus takes what was a kid's sack lunch Um, or what we might call a doggy bag from Harper's Catfish, if you've been there, you know, a couple of fillets and five hush puppies, and he starts breaking them up. And somehow with that little, he has this meal of abundance. He feeds all 5,000 men plus women and children that were there and have all these basket fields left over. And now here they are again. They've caught nothing all night. Their nets have been empty. And now suddenly... They're full with 153 large fish, abundance again. There is no question. This is Jesus. He has shown up again. And so 
What, what, whenever Peter recognized this, um, which John, the disciple that Jesus loves, it talks about him. He's always the first one to get it in, the, in his telling of the story. I can't wait to ask the other disciples in heaven if that's really how it went or if John was putting on. But, you know, he gets it. He says, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter hears that, you know, he's excited. And sometimes when we're excited, we don't do the most logical things, right? So Peter, he puts on his clothes and he jumps into the water, which doesn't make sense at all to me. But to, to, to him in that moment, evidently it was going to take too long for them to get the net in and him to get to Jesus. So he just takes off swimming instead. And soon enough, all the rest of the disciples get to the shore as well. And whenever they get there, Jesus is ready for them. I mean, Jesus has built a fire. He has some fish on it. He's got bread. He's ready to sit down and enjoy this meal. He is there to meet with them. And I don't want you to miss this. He is there to meet with them right in the midst of their fear. He is there to meet with them right in the midst of their questions. He is there to meet with them right in the midst of their doubt. And he doesn't sit there and scold them for walking away. He doesn't sit there and try to convince them to get out of this, this dark place that they find themselves in. No, what does Jesus do? He sits down with them right where they are in that moment. And it is in Jesus' presence that the restoration of their faith begins. Three times Peter had denied Jesus, and three times Jesus will restore him. He asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? Three times Peter says yes. And each time what Jesus says to him in response is, feed or care for my sheep. Through these words, Jesus is revealing new hopes for the institutions that had let Peter down. In fact, he's, he's calling Peter to cultivate this new thing that Jesus had started through his life and his death and resurrection, the church. Jesus reveals a new way of looking at who God is to Peter, a, a God who forgives and who refuses to let the worst thing ever be the last thing in our lives. And finally, Jesus, he, he makes it personal to Peter. Peter, who feels like he's lost his sense of purpose. Uh, Peter, who feels like the direction for his life is gone, like what Jesus does in that moment is he, he calls Peter back to the call that he placed on his life from the moment that he had called him on the seashore. Then at, at the beginning of John, he calls him by saying, come follow me and I will make you not just a fisherman, but a fisher of people. And as they have this encounter on the seashore, Jesus is reassuring Peter that despite all that has happened, this calling, this purpose, this meaning for his life remains. Perhaps you are here today and you are longing for, for your faith to be restored in some way. Maybe the institution of the church has let you down or broken your heart. And if so, based on those statistics that I, I named earlier, you are certainly not alone. Many of those 3,500 people who will walk away from the church today are young people. Young people who, who feel like the church has become dominated more by, by judgment than by love. Young people who feel like the church has become more concerned about drawing sharp lines between who is out and who is in, rather than speaking up for, for the people who are oppressed and marginalized. But it's not just young people who are walking away. Um, I can't help but think about my own grandmother. Um, my my grandfather, great-grandfather, um, he was a Sunday school superintendent, right, Dad, in the United Methodist Church. 
Um, he, it was back in the day, like if you had perfect attendance, you got pins for it, you know? And so like my great grandfather had just like all the pins. They like lined his jacket every single week. And so my, my grandmother grew up in that. She went to church with him on Sundays. She took my dad and uh, her kids to church, but there was a point where she came to church and she sat down in a seat and someone came over to her and said, you have to move because that's my seat. And in that moment, she got up, and she really never went back. She never felt welcome there. Sometimes the institution of the church that is made up of imperfect people, it does great harm in the name of Jesus. It can communicate in so many different ways that there's not a seat for you if just fill in the blank. Or maybe you're here today and the theology that you taught, you were taught growing up in your life, it's like breaking down for one reason or another. You know, perhaps all of the very black and white Sunday school answers that you learned are colliding with the real life situations that you are walking through. You know, maybe you were told all the time that your prayers would be answered if you just prayed hard enough or that you would be healed if you just had faith enough or that everything happens for a reason. But for all you're trying, you cannot make sense of how in the world that could be true and God be good. It might seem like there is no way for you to hold the Bible and God together with reason and with your experience. Or perhaps you're here today and you're personally struggling struggling to find purpose, struggling to find meaning. Maybe you thought you knew where you're headed and, and something has gotten you off track. Maybe it feels like God is being distant or silent or has given up on you for one reason or another. Maybe you're here today and none of those things describe where you are in this moment. But I think we can all kind of agree that it's possible that we're all just one situation away from finding ourselves in that same place. And when we are there, when we are in those places, it can feel like we have hit rock bottom and there is absolutely no way we're going to get back out again. We might feel like there are zero options available to us, no possibilities, no way to find our way back. We can feel absolutely powerless. But so often it is in that very moment when we are able to admit that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to put all the pieces back together again, that Jesus appears, that Jesus reveals himself, that Jesus shows up like he did on that seashore in our lives, and he invites us to cast our net again, to hope again, giving us not just one but an abundance of options to find our way back to him. Today, I want you to hear the story of someone in our congregation. We've been doing this throughout this series, right? We've been hearing from people. A lot of them have been from our Melrose campus, which has been great. But today we get to hear from someone who worships right here with us at Greenwood. There's a person who, um, who as she's gone through her life, has had the institution of the church fail her and harm her. A person who found that the theology she'd always been taught was not adding up. A person who found that personally her sense of purpose was being shaken. But now um, she not only worships here every single week with us, but she leads us in worship. God has been at work restoring her faith. This is the story of Carla LaFontaine. <coughs> 
I am Carla LaFontaine, and I've been here at Broadway since the fall of 2019, um, and I love it. <laughs> I found my place in my community. I grew up in a church, always. Um, I grew up in a very conservative religion. I grew up Pentecostal. My dad was a pastor my entire life, and so I didn't. I grew up knowing nothing else except church and being told this is what you're going to do, and my parents told me from an early age, like, you're going to be in ministry. You're going to be in ministry. Like you've got something big to do. And, and so that was like, woo, that's awesome. But also I always felt like a lot of pressure for me. Um, I come from a long line of pastors, my sisters, married pastors, my dad, my grandfather. But then I started to notice that I am a little different from them in lots of ways uh, around high school and, and becoming a young adult. And I realized that theologically, I'm very different from my family. I've always been that kid that asked the, like, but why questions. Um, you tell me these things about the Bible and about God and about Jesus. I'm yeah, but why? Like, there's got to be a why to this. Um, I also started figuring out that I just was a different person. Um, and so I really dealt with my sexuality, but was told that, I mean, point blank, it would send me to hell to be gay. And so that was a struggle that I had from, I mean, probably the middle of high school. And knowing that, I, I tried to deal with it with so many ways. Um, I definitely had suicidal moments in high school. I had plans. Um, and so that was always a struggle that I swept under the rug, swept under the rug. Um, I went to college and all of this time, you know, it's in my head, like, I'm supposed to be a minister. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to be a minister. That's my calling. That's what I've been told since birth. And so I did a lot of work and I did a lot of digging in the Bible. I did a lot of therapy. I probably spent more time in the Bible in that period of my life than I ever had before. And so it has given me this new respect for the Bible. It's given me, it's holy to me and holier than it ever has been before. Everybody wants to be a part of something. Everyone should have a place to be a part of a community, especially in the church. It needs to be talked about. There needs to be a place to talk about it. And it's one of the reasons I'm here. I was away from the church for almost two years. And I found myself here in an office having a conversation, literally looked at my friend and said, if this conversation doesn't go well, it will be detrimental to my faith. I don't know if I could ever go back to a church. And here I am. <laughs> the conversation went okay. Um, but it matters that we had it, you know, and I've had that conversation with, you know, so many people here now and. I want to have that conversation with everyone, anyone who wants to know. And for me, it wasn't like God is doing this to me or Jesus is doing this to me. It was always like people are getting this wrong and they're hurting other people. It was never about Jesus. It was never about God. That's re It's restored so many things in me. Um, and the, you know, the church has become... This church specifically 
has become a place that has loved me for who I am. And I didn't even love myself for who I was before, you know? It's hard to find that for yourself or for anyone else when you kind of hate a part of who you are, you know? And um, I don't hate that part of me anymore. I, I really truly love myself, but I found this community that does that here. And it's, it's a powerful thing to be able to be yourself and someone else fully love you for that. It's powerful. And I always knew Jesus did. I always knew God loved me. But I wasn't always sure the church could or that ministers could. And, um, and I've learned that it's possible. These people are who they, they say they are, and they are who we think they are. That's the kind of place I want to create. That's the kind of place I want to be part of. That's the kind of church I can get behind. We need a church full of people who can live up to the full abilities of what God's given them. What, what are your gifts? What do you want to do? How do you want to love on people? Awesome. Let's do that. That's Carla's story. Um, we actually have a longer version of that. Um, getting it down, Molly has worked on this all week. Getting it down to that version was very difficult. It's all gold. Um, and we'll make sure that it's available to you guys if you all want to watch it. Um, but you guys, this congregation, you have helped create a space for Carla to come in and encounter Jesus, for her faith to be restored. And so I think the question for us is just how can we be even more intentional about doing that? How can we do that even more and even better? How can we create space for others? Um, if you are here today and your faith has been shaken, I just want to say to you, welcome home. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> My prayer is that as we continue to worship in these next moments, that Jesus will appear, that he will reveal himself to you, and that he can begin restoring your faith as only he can.